Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, a liberal retreat. We are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil. The Prime Minister does an about-face on the carbon tax, eliminating the levy on Atlantic home oil heating and increasing the rural rebate. But was the move motivated by concerns over affordability or falling poll numbers? Don't be fooled by Justin Trudeau's latest panic maneuver. Coming up, we will speak with our weekly journalist panel. Multiple governments of both stripes ignored our intelligence agencies who've been warning about the heat in the water from China. And also on the program, Aaron O'Toole on his ongoing concerns about foreign interference. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Well, the opposition leader came out fighting Friday morning, Pierre Polyev calling out the Prime Minister and Trudeau's decision to reverse his own policy of taxing home oil heating in Atlantic Canada and increasing the carbon tax rebate for rural Canadians. Justin Trudeau is in total panic mode. After eight years of telling Canadians they had to pay higher carbon taxes on gas, heat, and groceries, he admitted that his carbon tax is not worth the cost of heat. Now, the reversal in Liberal policy was made late Thursday, and while Pierre Polyev says it was motivated by the Conservative acts of the tax campaign and Trudeau's own falling numbers, the Prime Minister, well, he makes a different argument. He says this is about trying to address Atlantic concerns while still moving forward with the government's climate goals. This is a program that continues to push what we need, which is to reduce our emissions and to support families as we do it. Uh, it's a program uh, that took uh, a lot of hard work uh, and a lot of discussions in terms of getting it right, but the various elements that we're announcing today I know are going to be extremely well received uh, by people across Atlantic Canada. Joining us now are Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and Tonda McCharles, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Hello to both of you. Hey there. Thank you for having us. Oh, I'm always happy to have you on the program. Uh, listen, we're looking at what, like a pause on taxing home oil heating Atlantic Canada, a program to, to buy uh, uh, heat pumps for lower income Canadians, as well as the doubling of rebate for rural Canadians. Is this about finally queuing into affordability issues for the Trudeau government, or as Pierre Polyev basically says, this is all about their falling numbers in the polls. I think two things can be true at once. Uh, the Liberals are spinning it as they're attuned to the affordability issue, the cost of living burden that some of the heating, the home heating uh, costs are putting on people, especially given the carbon levy. But uh, there's no question in anybody's mind that this is because in large measure that Liberal caucus has had huge um, losses in support in Atlantic Canada, right, where this tax is, uh, where the carbon tax was really hitting hard. And uh, to the Conservatives' credit, you know, they've been hammering this, hammering it. I mean, I think Paul, Pierre Polyev was in Newfoundland alone three or four times in the last several months. So just hammering it and finding a willing and winning audience there. Yeah, hammering it, as you say, because every single day there's a news conference about axing a tax. Uh, Bob, what do you say? 
Oh, look, I think the government uh, is in panic mode. They are willing to take uh, one of their mo most important pri priorities uh, on, the, on, on the carbon tax, particularly with oil, he home heating, which is a, a real polluter, uh, a contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, and throw it in the garbage can because they are so worried about those seats in, in Atlantic Canada. And to Tonda's point is that uh, Mr. Polyev has been in Atlantic Canada and he's been campaigning mm -hmm. Thursday night that uh, after the announcement was done, he had over a thousand people in Windsor, Nova Scotia, a thousand people. Uh, and he was hammering away at them saying, you know, okay, they say they're going to uh, uh, not impose the carbon tax on, on, on home heating oil, but that's only for three years right after the election campaign. We'll get rid of this carbon tax. So, I, you know, it, it was an effective message and uh, the government is in real trouble here. And the problem they have is that, frankly, uh, and I know we'll probably talk about this, but you know, it's one thing for Atlantic Canada seats. Well, what about the rest of the country? Mm -hmm. What about mm -hmm. in, in Western Canada, where most people do not have, uh, they have natural gas and not home heating oil? It doesn't apply to them. So yeah. it's a very divisive policy as well. Yeah, we, we will get to that in a second. But, you know, you're talking about uh, the Liberals, uh, MPs, individual MPs, seeing the, 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 them being hit hard in the region. And without a doubt, here's a Liberal government that relies on the Atlantic Canadian mm -hmm. vote, that relies on the vote in Ontario and in and the, the vote in Quebec as well to, mm -hmm. to keep them afloat. Uh, but, you know, we were covering the, the, the Liberal caucus in London before the return of Parliament in September. And behind closed doors, we know that the MPs were giving the, the, sure. the, the Prime Minister a hard time saying that they're getting killed on the issue of the carbon tax back home. Why did it take so long to respond to that call, given that meeting was before the return of Parliament? Yeah, so that meeting was in September. But I think, look, it's been even longer than that, right? Almost right away this summer, the Atlantic premiers were putting up um, complaints and objections to uh, uh, Trudeau about the impact of this and I mean I just I would just say a couple of things like first of all you can't say they're throwing the whole thing in the garbage they've put a pause on it they're going to bring it in in three years but I don't know that that actually electorally is a better pitch for any of those MPs because you're closer to an election at that point and now people actually do know the real pain of it they've had months of living with higher uh, oil costs and by the way higher gas and diesel costs as well and that also hits rural Canadians and it also hits you know uh, people who use boats uh, to do their daily work and use trucks and whatever so I, I don't know that it's necessarily um, I guess an electoral win for them yet uh, the closer you are to a campaign Pierre Polyev is going to be able to use that as a sledgehammer anyway against this government. Well, also I mean if they're going to have uh, they're going to allow um, people in Atlantic Canada to, to be able to uh, have, to have these home home heating uh, devices well wait a the second you know yeah. uh, I mean what about the rest of the country? Well, the, the supply yeah. of heating, you know, most of, uh, I, I guess a third they say, but I know certainly in Newfoundland and Labrador, most people do still heat their homes with oil. Uh, a third in the in the Atlantic provinces use heating oil. They don't have the option of natural gas heating supplies in many places. So uh, to say that, to say that what about the rest? Of, I mean, I think that the government oh. is still making the case. I agree it's going to be a politically challenging thing to do to make that case, but they are still making the case that the idea is to bring down usage of all of these 
fossil fuels. It's just, I'm, I, there's a lack of coherence policy-wise. It signals that the government's ready to bend on its signature mm -hmm. policy. And there's a lack of coherence politically, to Bob's point. Other regions will feel left out and hard done by. Well, let me jump in here because we did hear from Danielle Smith, uh, the Alberta Premier, right. taking social media, uh, Twitter, X, I don't really know what to call it these days. Uh, this is, take a look at what she had to say uh, on social media. Although I congratulate Atlantic Canadians for a well-deserved break from the carbon tax on home heating oil, I am frankly disturbed that the same break will not be extended to Albertans and those from Saskatchewan and elsewhere in Canada who heat their homes with natural gas. And she asked the question, are we not Canadians too? So, you know, uh, to your point, Bob, there are many people looking at what's happening with Atlantic Canada, wondering about their own bills at home. Will the Liberal government be forced to also address that and make concessions to, to this campaign that Danielle Smith is spending $8 million on right now to try to get Liberals to listen to? Look, it is a very serious issue because, you know, you do have to treat everybody the same in this country. And if people in Western Canada or in Northern Ontario, for example, where if they can't get heat pumps, because most people in Northern Ontario don't have access to natural gas, it's usually home heating oil. If, they can't, if they're not treated, being treated the same way as an electorally important province, the Liberals as Atlantic Canada, people are going to say, oh, wait, what is next? Uh, oh, the GDA will get, uh, you know, a break here and, uh, you know, the southern part of, of British Columbia, but the hell with the Western Canada. This is a this is a national unity issue that uh, can be played effectively by the premiers in Western Ca Canada as well. So, I mean, the Liberals have put themselves in a real bind here. They're trying to they're trying to deal with a really serious affordability issue, um, but uh, for electoral reasons. Uh, uh, just like they did on the housing when they reduced the GST because Mr. Polyev was making political hay out of that. But this hasn't, this is not, I think this is one that's going to cause them a lot more trouble because it's exclusively for, mostly exclusively for Atlantic Canadians and everybody else is going to say across the country, well, what about me? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, what do you say there, Tonda? Well, I mean, I think, I think, I still think that, um, you know, it is an argument absolutely to be expected from the Conservative Premiers out West to make. Absolutely, they're going to make that argument. And I think that it is going to be challenging for the government to make the case that's not what they're doing because of the incoherence on the policy. Bottom line here, uh, you know, the government is saying on the one hand that they're still behind pricing carbon no matter what. And yet, on the other hand, we see the, the only kind of carbon right now that they're willing to cut a break on is home heating oil in Atlantic Canada and not the natural gas heating source for other areas. So yeah, huge challenge politically for them and it does signal that they're worried. Okay, well that leads me to, to, to the big question then because if this is in response to obviously a free fall in the numbers for the Liberals, does this decision have the potential to turn things around for them? in Atlantic Canada and the rest of the country? Because on the one hand, you know, and we're all making it here, they're, they're 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 making a concession on affordability, but at the same time they're they're watering down their own environmental policy. And flip flopping never looks good on any leader. Do you think the Liberals will gain from this? Look, it's a tough it's a tough argument to make, but they are, will make the argument that this shows a government listening to its own MPs and listening to the concerns of real people. Uh, it is a tough argument to make when you see all the inco inconsistencies we've pointed out here. But will it turn it around? I think it's far too soon. We're at least, I'd say, a year out maybe, or eight months from an election, and at most two years out. So who knows what's going to turn it around? Look, there are many fires for this government right now, and uh, I, don't, I don't know that I'd be putting any money on anything turning it around right now. Yeah, Bob? Well, uh, look, I, I don't think it's going to be turned around for the Liberals until uh, Justin Trudeau leaves. 
uh, because the problem he has is he's been around here for a long time. And there has been no government since Mackenzie King that has gone past 10 years. And he's heading into his ninth year. So it's going to be extremely difficult for him to be able to you know, win another uh, government when uh, you still have, you're still confronted with all of these issues on affordability, which is not going to go away anytime soon. And although these things help a little, they're not going to help all that much. And what happens, you know, in a in a year's time when people are with their uh, waiting to get their rebates on their their uh, uh, home heating uh, pump and they can't get it? I mean, that'll you know how government what is. What will help the government <laughs> recover? You know, the the lag in the polls right now is if inflation comes down, people can meet their bills, and if the Bank of Canada sees fit to drop interest rates so people can pay their mortgages without the pain they're feeling now. Those big macroeconomic things will help this government. Small policy changes may not be, you know the thing that, that get, rescues them. Yeah, although uh, to hear it from uh, the Bank of Canada Governor, we're looking uh, not until 2025 before the rates go down. And, you know, uh, I'm going to squeeze in one more question here because I want to pick up on what you're saying here. Is Justin Trudeau at the point where people are so tired of him that no matter what he does, he's not going to turn the numbers around? I don't know if you've, you've considered well, I, that. That's, personally, I think that's... My position is that I think it's very difficult. I think people over the summer made up their mind that they've, they've had it with them. It doesn't mean that they've had it with the Liberal Party. Um, you know, maybe if you put somebody, it's just a, it's a matter of timing and length of time that you have a leader. And it's very difficult for somebody to go beyond that 10-year period in federal politics or even provincial politics for that matter. And, but it doesn't mean that if there's a new leader that they couldn't present themselves as a, as a as a fresh face that could defeat uh, Mr. Polyev. So, you know, all, you know, politics is, is the art of the possibility, right? Okay. Uh, any words on that one? No, I would just say that the Conservatives and the NDP are absolutely banking on the fact that Justin Trudeau is not the sellable commodity he was in 2015 in the next campaign. And uh, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, we were at the NDP convention, and that was clearly the, the, the signal as well. They're not worried about Justin Trudeau. They're much more focused on Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives. But, of course, a discussion for another day. <laughs> but for now, Bob and Tonda, thank you for the time. Thanks. Let's take a look now at some of the top stories of this past week. On Tuesday, the federal court approved a $23 billion compensation package for First Nations children and their families affected by the underfunding of First Nations child welfare services. This is the largest settlement in Canadian history and could involve more than 300,000 people. To be clear, I mean, compensation can't, uh, you know, it can't restore uh, many of those harms. It's an acknowledgement, though, that I think survivors have been calling for for a very long time. The agreement follows a 2019 ruling from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, that body ordering a huge financial penalty for the discrimination faced by First Nations children and their families. The federal government initially fought the decision, but in the end negotiated with the affected parties. Alberta's proposal to pull out of the Canada Pension Plan got a lot of attention this week. The Deputy Prime Minister, Krista Freeland, now setting up a meeting with her provincial and territorial counterparts to discuss the province's potential exit from the CPP. It was Ontario's Finance Minister, Peter Bethlenfalvy, who called for this urgent meeting. That this is something that uh, we should discuss and, and reassure Canadians that you know we, we can work together to to keep the Canada Pension Plan together. 
In September, the Alberta Premier Danielle Smith began consultations to leave the CPP, claiming Albertans have a right to more than half of the fund's assets, approximately $334 billion. And if we hear that Albertans are interested and supportive of taking next steps, we will work toward proving, uh, providing you with the opportunity to choose an Alberta pension plan in a referendum. But Smith's proposal is facing widespread opposition, including from the Prime Minister, who says an Alberta exit from the plan would, quote, weaken the pensions of millions of seniors and hardworking people. As for Conservative leader Pierre Polyev, he blames Trudeau for inspiring Alberta's potential move, but Polyev is urging Albertans to stick with the national plan. To the conflict in the Middle East now as the Israeli Defense Force says it is expanding ground operations in its war with Hamas as Canada along with its allies call for a humanitarian pause to get foreign nationals out and aid for Palestinian people in. We're engaged closely with our allies on trying to build humanitarian corridors, get aid in, get civilians and foreign nationals out of Gaza. I think there's a lot of conversations going on now about the need for humanitarian pauses, and I think that's something that Canada can absolutely Aaron O'Toole returned to Parliament Hill this week, testifying before the House Procedures Committee. He once again raised the alarm about foreign interference and asked some serious questions about why the government did not share security concerns about China's attempt to influence Canadian elections. We were led to believe there were no serious problems with 2019 and that there was nothing to flag as the election got underway. Uh, I think that was an error. Well, joining us now is former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole, thank you for being here. Good to be with you. So here you are appearing before the committee, and obviously you, you have a number of questions. And one of them has to do with the fact that neither you nor uh, your, your campaign chair were asked about the allegations or concerns you had about foreign interference by Morris Rosenberg. I know that's a question that you have as to why those interviews did not happen. Have you come up with your own answers though, your own thoughts on that matter? Well, I, I do think the Rosenberg report was well-intended, but incomplete and improperly done. And so what I tried to say today to a committee of the House, but I was also telegraphing some of my concerns to Madam Justice Hogue, who just began her independent judicial inquiry, is some of these questions need to be asked. Why the, the leader that we now know was targeted by by China, uh, why did my designate, who had to get security clearance to participate in the election protection protocol, why weren't we part of the debrief when they were assessing whether the system worked? There was really only one party, uh, one leader, and a number of candidates and, and ridings targeted. We now know this because of leaks. So how could you do a proper assessment of how well the system worked to protect our election if you didn't speak to the parties directly involved. So I, I do have respect for Mr. Rosenberg's worked a, a career for the country, but um, you know what direction was he given? I do think there's a, an accountability politically that ultimately the prime minister is responsible for. But I've tried to say the balance of getting the relationship with China right um, has been a challenge for both liberal and conservative governments. So I'm hoping both the committee and Justice Hogue 
we'll be able to really shine the light so that we can start to get the bounce right. And you, you, you did put in that comparison or make the metaphor of uh, essentially Canada is the frog in a boiling pot. And you do point to successive governments. But, but what is that? Is that ignorance, willful, willful ignorance? What do you think is behind that? No, it's, it's two things. One, the importance of China as an economic, economic actor. The growth of modern China has been explosive and it has really driven globalization and changing trade routes and uh, export markets for everything from planes we make and nuclear technology right through to pork and oil seeds. Um, but we can never sacrifice our values and our concerns about uh, religious freedom or protection of minorities like the, the Uyghur Muslim population um, because we're so committed to the economy. So I do think all governments, all stripes, have tried to get the balance right. I do think Mr. Trudeau did not move quickly enough, particularly in 2017, when the communist regime in Beijing took a particularly uh, strong turn towards the worst aspects of communism. Um, I've spoken when we created the Canada-China Committee in 2019 about even my own experience as a lawyer in the private sector, all big companies were chasing strategies to do more trade and work with China. But we can never do that at the expense of our values as a country. And that's what foreign policy has to be a mi mixture, Michael, of economic interests, but not sacrificing our values, our core values of, of freedom, respect for, for others, you know, tolerance and diversity and protecting minorities. So I, I hope we, we start to do a bit of a reset. Mm -hmm. A bit of a reset, but before that reset gets there, you know, uh, your, your former uh, parliamentary uh, party colleague, Michael Cooper, he asked you, given the fact that members uh, of the Privy Council knew of China interference with you and members of your party two years before there was any admission from the prime minister or any, any government level or, or, or the briefing that you got from CSIS, he asked whether or not the Prime Minister owes you an apology. Do you think he does? Well, look, um, I'm out of politics now. Uh, I'm, I'm only here on the Hill because I do want our country to get this right. I was called as a witness. I was briefed by CSIS about interference with respect to me, like Ms. Kwan, like Michael Chong. And so um, I want to be productive. But there are so many questions about reports from the Parliamentary Oversight Committee, NCI COP in 2019, reports to the Prime Minister early in 2021, the report about an official and Michael Chong's family just a couple of months before the election. Yet when the election started, we were told by the process and by senior figures that there was really nothing to be concerned about. We now know that that, in my opinion, is not an accurate assessment. So. I didn't come to, to seek an apology. Um, I'm very proud of the work that both myself and my family committed to public life, but I care deeply about the country. So I want us to get the balance right. So I'm very happy Mr. Trudeau finally relented and appointed an independent judicial inquiry. Um, so I'd rather us get the balance right than, than get an apology or anything like this, but I don't want to see yet another election where some voices in Canada may not have voted or may have been pressured in exercising their right, whether you've been a citizen for 10 minutes or 10 years, you should be able to vote 
free from any intimidation in this country, regardless of where you live. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned Justice Hogue more than once. You mentioned the, the inquiry now underway. But, you know, an interim report is not expected before February. And, and then we'll see where, where the chips lie there. But in the, in, in the meantime, there are still concerns about foreign interference. That has not gone away. Is there something you'd like to see from the government right now, between now and when that interim report is expected, what can we do as a country to to better prepare ourselves against foreign interference? Well, there's a few things that have been debated for many years. And in fact, my former colleague, Kenny Chu, who I believe was one of the most uh, targeted candidates in the last election, the foreign agent registry, um, I think, is something that's critical. Other allies have done. And it's about transparency. There will be a lot of people that in business and other relationships might uh, represent an outside uh, uh, country or, or, or enterprise, much like the lobbyist registry. As long as there's transparency, we can see if there's any you know, agendas at play. But without a registry, we don't really know whether certain voices are making a case on a certain issue because of financial motive, because of political motive. So that's certainly one thing. I do, I would like to see more trust of parliamentarians. So if ever a senator or a member of parliament, if the intelligence agencies know they're being targeted, um, or they've acted in a way that's raising suspicion, it should be brought to their attention immediately. You know, the fact that Mr. Chong learned about his family being surveilled and, and, and specifically targeted through the newspaper, that's inappropriate. And I think most Canadians know that. So I talked a little bit about the three Michaels, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spaver, who we as a country waited for their return from unlawful detention. I think the country was also quite shocked by the case of Michael Chong and the fact that his family in Hong Kong um, potentially had risks. So let's, let's learn from this. Let's have some flexibility. I think even before Justice Hogg uh, presents her preliminary findings. Mm-hmm. You know, you have always had a very uh, clearly articulated policy and thoughts when it came to China uh, from the moment you came to Ottawa. And so I wonder, how should we view China? It's still our number two trading partner. Uh, part of that is because Canada actively sought out contracts with, with Chinese companies. Is that something that needs to change? Do we need to turn our backs on China and find, find another partner? No, but we should be very clear that our values are not for sale. And so um, how do we balance off making sure we make our case for minority populations in that country, the case for, for Hong Kong concerns uh, in the Taiwan Strait, where even our, uh, our military vessels, when they're transiting, are, are surveilled and sort of harassed? Um, we shouldn't just say the almighty buck as the only aspect of the relationship with China. And as I said, I used to work in the private sector. I know how important the economy is. But in 2017 particularly, there became a doubling down on the worst aspects of communism, both for, for the Chinese people and, and minority groups, but also their wolf warrior diplomacy abroad. Uh, I think we need to work with our allies, whether it's on uh, critical minerals and security issues, whether it's on uh, taking a stand on human rights, whether it's on uh, rebalancing trade rules. I do think we have to be eyes wide open as a country.
Mm-hmm. Uh, quickly losing time, but I do have to ask you, because when you stood in the House of Commons and talked about your CSIS briefing, you, you talked about how you were warned that even when you walk away from public life, when you retire from Parliament, that you would still be targeted by the People's Republic. I, I'm wondering, one, if that worries you, and two, whether or not you've seen evidence of that. I've not seen evidence of that. and. Um, I often jest that that's one of my parting gifts from from politics. But look, my first form of public service was in the military. And I believe in putting the country and our interests and our values first. Um, My family has always had that approach with our our time in in public life. So while, you know, of course, I always worry about my, my family, I think making the case in a way that defends um, our interests, but the Chinese-Canadian diaspora are coming here for the freedom and to, to be able to live and vote for whomever they want, free of intimidation. They deserve a, a voice, and I've tried to be that. And I do think um, the incredible opportunity, if, if China actually embraced human rights and moved away from the worst aspects of communism, they could actually be a true global leader Uh, as opposed to one that has the democratic world kind of worried. So um, let's hope we see a a better future for, for, for China. But in the meantime, we have to bolster our defenses and our protections of our democracy, of our institutions. We have to work with our allies on critical minerals, on intellectual property, um, it's a time where I think the world is finally waking up when the five eyes intelligence leaders of of our closest allies, including David Vignon from CSIS in Canada, go on 60 Minutes in Washington to talk about concerns with China, a group of people that usually never speak to the media, you know the world is kind of waking up to the fact that we have to engage pragmatically, respectfully, but always put our interests and values first. Aaron O'Toole, I appreciate the time. Good to see you. Good to see you again. And that is our program for today. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching, and we'll see you next time right here on Primetime Politics.